This evening, as we turn to God's Word, uh, we turn back to a series that I have touched on over the last few months or year. Uh, I have begun a study of 1 Peter, and we're going to pick this up in earnest now and uh, eventually get to the end. Uh, but we are going to complete the first chapter of 1 Peter this evening, focusing on verses 13 to 25, but uh, so as to remind ourselves of how Peter begins his epistle to uh, the scattered Christians in Asia Minor. I'd like to read the whole chapter tonight, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is God's holy word for our instruction. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And now verses 13 and following our passage for this evening. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. And here we end our reading of God's holy Word this evening. Well, saints of God, over the last few decades, a lot has been said about the matter of Christian freedoms in America. One of the questions that is bandied about uh, on the news and uh, in our society is this, is there a war on Christians and Christianity in our nation today? And I think we can answer that question from probably two perspectives. On one hand, uh, if we compare our situation as Christians living in America uh, to the incessant violence that occurs against Christians living in other parts of the world, China, Africa, the Middle East, for example, then I think the answer to that question is probably no. Uh, the hostility towards Christians in this nation is comparatively minimal in our part of the world. None of us are being dragged out of our homes and imprisoned because we are Christians, at least not yet. But what is happening in, in our nation today is, is a growing animosity, a growing intolerance toward Christian beliefs, towards Christian practices that takes on the form of an attack on religious freedom of expression. That's where we see the hostility. One uh, Christian apologist says this, in current American culture, you're free to be a Christian as long as you don't actually live out your faith. Or, or vote your faith, or take a stand in relation to your faith, or believe that other people should embrace Christianity. In other words, Christianity is acceptable, but only if it remains socially irrelevant, hidden away in some corner ghetto, out of sight, out of mind. Well, that's a relevant context for us to think about because in this section of Peter's epistle, uh, the apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's urging them neither to cower in a Christian ghetto uh, to put their, their light under a lamp, nor should they adopt the values of their present world, their present culture. And what he does here is he calls the saints to action. He calls them to action based on the reality of their living hope in Jesus Christ, the reality that he has just explained in verses 3 through 12 here in chapter 1. In a beautiful uh, portion of this epistle, in verses 3 through 12, Peter said to the saints that God, by His great mercy, has caused them to be born again the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's made them heirs to the heavenly inheritance that God is right now keeping safe for them. And he says in those verses that the hope of this inheritance lives on and fuels their joy 
amidst the trials and persecutions of the present life. Well, now here in the last half of this chapter, Peter begins, therefore, and as I've said many times, whenever we see therefore, we must ask, what's the therefore, therefore? That's a very good transition uh, in the letters. And what the apostle is trying to do is he's, he's seeking to draw out some important implications of this living hope for the lives of believers who live in a hostile world. And you notice that the the number one result, the number one implication of this living hope is that God's people ought to be holy. They ought to be, and we ought to be, holy. This is a word that we use often uh, in worship, and and we encounter it often in our Scripture reading. It's an important word filled with a great deal of meaning, not only about God's character, but how we are to live as those made in the image of God. Holiness basically means set-apartness. It means separation from sin. It means moral purity. That's what God calls us to demonstrate. And not surprisingly, it's this holiness that is the attribute that is most despised by the culture, the world in which we live. Unbelievers despise our spiritual and moral uniqueness. The fact that we don't speak like them, that we don't look like them, that we don't prioritize like them drives them crazy because they cannot bear the holiness of God. They want to tuck us away in some obscure corner. But Peter says our primary call from God as elect exiles in a wicked and hostile world, is to remain true to our God-given distinctives. Amidst the, the changing political and social tides of this present world, we are to set ourselves apart as holy unto God. And we're to take hope in His unchanging character and His enduring grace. I want to look at that theme tonight with you under these three points, noting that our holy conduct as Christians is born, first of all, of that living hope that Peter talks about. Secondly, that our holy conduct is born of godly fear, godly fear. And then finally, our holy conduct is to be born of brotherly love. First of all, note with me from verses 13 to 16 uh, that Peter begins by saying that our, our living, our Christian action and obedience is to be based upon and strengthened by our living hope, our living hope. And when uh, Peter says this, I'm reminded of the, the 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption. If you've not seen that film, I'm afraid I have a spoiler alert for you because I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Um, it's, it's really quite a dramatic and moving story about a man named Andy Dufresne who is sentenced to a life in prison, Shawshank Prison, for a crime, a murder he didn't commit. And throughout the film, despite the the depressing circumstances of prison life and the fact that he is, in fact, innocent, um, he, he determines never to give up hope. He even says to a friend of his during the film, he says, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. But by the end of the film, his prison mates are beginning to think that he has become delusional, perhaps even suicidal, when he talks about leaving the prison, his hope of leaving the prison. His hope seems to his friends to be a delusion, but they don't know what's been going on behind the scenes. 
For the last 19 years, he's been secretly tunneling through his prison cell wall with a tiny pick. And by the end of this story, his hope is in fact realized as he escapes and and starts a new life. The the point is that his hope, Andy's hope, which sustained him amidst the, the difficult circumstances that surrounded him, was born of the knowledge of the reality of what was to come his escape, his escape to the warm beaches of Mexico that awaited him on the other side. Well, in a similar way, Peter says that that our hope in the grace of Jesus Christ, hope in the reality of our heavenly inheritance, um, hope in the full deliverance from sin that we are going to enjoy, hope in the joy of living in God's presence forever, that, that, that knowledge of that hope is what grounds and informs the way we live in this present evil age. And so he begins by calling us to live in such a way, to conduct ourselves according to that status as the elect privileged people of God. Notice with me how Peter fills his epistle with action verbs. He says in verse 13 here, he says, set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. And we see here in these verses that uh, specifically we should do that, actively set our hope on the grace of Christ in at least two ways. We ought to do that in thought, first of all, but also in action. First of all here, Peter says, set your hope on your heavenly inheritance by preparing your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now, Peter here literally says this. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's not a phrase that we use too often here in America. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting Hebrew idiom, but uh, it's important to, to recognize that during the first century when, when men would uh, set themselves, ready themselves to do some sort of task, uh, or if they were running after someone or being chased by someone, they would, they would tuck up the f- long folds of their robe and tuck them into their belt so that they would be ready for action. And that's what Peter says to the saints. He says to them, ready yourself, prepare yourself as a community of believers with one mind to think long and hard about how the present and future grace of Christ affects your life here and now. And he also says that in setting their hope on God's grace, they should be sober-minded. They should be self-controlled a call that he repeats no less than three times here in this epistle. And and these are very strategic directions for us as the modern church because it seems that Christians tend to fall into one of two extremes. On one hand, we can become very apathetic about or passive uh, in applying the significance of God's gracious promises to our everyday life. Sometimes we we lack the spiritual consciousness to apply the living hope of the grace of Christ to our family lives, to our vocations, even our entertainment choices. We sometimes become so overwhelmed and, and preoccupied by the worldly challenges and concerns that surround us that we start to think that this hope about which Peter speaks is sort of wistful and groundless and otherworldly, not something that really profoundly impacts and shapes our lives. And so we need to be reminded to apply this hope of the grace of Christ to our lives. On the other hand, we can fall into another extreme 
We can become so fanatical or self-absorbed about our future life with God that we fail to take our earthly responsibilities seriously. We can become unstable, um, lacking in sobriety about the fact that we are still called by God to toil on this earth until we finally inherit the kingdom of Christ at His return. But Peter says to the saints, he says to us, we are to be both heavenly-minded, actively setting our hope on the promises of God rather than the empty promises of our pagan world, but we are also to be earthly profitable by carefully using our minds to promote the Lord's purposes here and now. And so one of the ways that we actively set our hope on the grace of Christ is by readying our minds for service to God and neighbor. Well, you notice, secondly, that setting our hope upon God's grace not only requires us to be obedient in thought, but also in action. Let me read verses 14 through 16 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter literally says to the saints to whom he writes, you ought to be children of obedience. If there's anything that's to characterize you before the eyes of the world, it is to be that, that you are obedient children. If you're to have a reputation in the world, it's to be this, that you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. In other words, Peter says, holiness goes hand in hand with active, focused obedience. And I want you to notice as we, we finish looking at these two verses, verse, these three verses, 14 through 16, that Peter, Peter's words here include a warning, uh, an exhortation, and a confirmation a warning, an exhortation, and a confirmation. In verse 14, he warns us, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Peter's original audience was uh, at least partly made up of former pagans uh, who at one time lived in ignorance of God's commandments. They, they were at one time separate from God on account of their sin. And so the apostle warns them in the Lord to resist the temptation to return, to go back to their former way of life. Like Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he says to them, put off your old self. Reject the worldly appetites that you once indulged and be renewed in the spirits, spirit of your minds. Put on, clothe yourself in the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is important for us to think carefully about because all of us, all of us, at one time, were separated from God on account of our sins, but have now been renewed in our spirits and brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, let your life reflect that reality. Don't let the thoughts and actions and desires that once characterized your life apart from Christ take up residence in your new life, your new self. Ask yourself daily, uh, do my priorities, my speech, my attitudes, my desires truly reflect the new creation that I am in Jesus Christ? 
Or are they remnants of my old self to which I must die every single day of my life? So Peter warns them in this way, but he also exhorts them in verse 15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter says, calling, being called by God, calling and holiness have a cause and effect relationship. We saw that this morning as we we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We read there, God has not called us to a life of impurity. He's called us to a life of holiness. Because we are the elect of God, because He has called us out of the sinful darkness of the world and brought us into His marvelous light, we have been set apart as a holy nation unto God. That means our identity has changed. That means our allegiances are radically different from what they were. That means our controlling desire should be to be imitators of God Himself because He has called us out of darkness. He has redeemed us from our former way of life and brought us into the light of holiness. Our lives ought to reflect that if we have that living hope in Jesus Christ. And then finally, Peter confirms the standard for imitating God is the holiness of God Himself. Here he quotes from Leviticus chapter 11, and he states God's will for us here in verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is and means actively fighting against sin in our lives and striving to be obedient to the God who has redeemed us. And God alone, not this world, Not our opinion of what God desires of us, but God alone determines what is right and what is holy. And it's His holiness that our our pagan neighbors should witness in our lives. And so the bottom line here in Peter's words here is this, that if we have a living hope based on the grace of Christ, then this hope will result in our having ready and sober minds committed to holy, godly living. We see, secondly, in verses 17 through 21, that our holy living, our holy conduct, should be born of godly fear. And everything here in these verses, verses 17 to 21, really hinge upon and help us to understand verse 17, the second half of that verse. We read there, "'Conduct yourselves with fear.'" throughout the time of your exile. What God's inspired author would have us understand is that our obedience is always a response to who God is and what He has done. And God reveals Himself in His Word both as our loving Father and as an impartial judge. Unfortunately, it's all too common within the church to think that uh, God is either a loving Father or an impartial judge, but never both. And that imbalanced view really uh, brings us into a, a place of thinking in an erroneous way about God, thinking that He's either a divine vending machine or a malevolent dictator. But both errors cloud our understanding of the God of the Bible, who reveals Himself to be equally just and loving. 
the God who provides for our needs and sustains us in the midst of life's trials in this present life is the same God who requires our heartfelt and diligent obedience. Why do you think Peter includes this here? Why is it important for him to emphasize to the suffering saints in Asia Minor that God is an impartial judge? Well, Peter does this so that we would understand that we ought to live carefully before God with reverence and respect for His holiness. We must live in this exile, recognizing that God hears the words that we speak. He knows our thoughts. Our actions do not escape His gaze, and He will certainly call us to account for the lifestyle we choose to live. Sometimes we, are, sometimes we are tempted to think that God's standards ease up for us because this life is likely to be filled with trials. We might think, well, God will certainly indulge my remaining sins and shortcomings because after all, I put up with a great deal of ridicule for bearing His name. You might think, I do so much for Him. Surely He will overlook the small amounts of pride and vanity and self-indulgence that remain in my life. But once we think this way, we fail to behold God as He really is, as the impartial judge who never lowers His standards for holy conduct. It's a sad phenomenon that despite the fact that, generally speaking, the church's voice in America has begun to be suppressed, nevertheless, this worldly opposition has not resulted in churches in America becoming more holy. Divorce rates in the church are still very high. Sound doctrine, faithful preaching are on the wane. Worldliness in the church is rampant. Christian persecution should lead to the increase of holiness among God's people, not its decrease. And so we need to take Peter's admonition to heart. We should be spurred on to holy conduct partly because God will hold us to account for our life's work. We must remember that the highest anger and enmity of the world is less than nothing in comparison with God's smallest, smallest displeasure of us. But verses 18 to 21 help us better understand the kind of fear that Peter's talking about here. It's important for us to know that for those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, it's not fear of divine punishment or divine condemnation that prompts our holy conduct. Instead, the fear that Peter talks about here on the main is a reverence, an honor, a humble worship, born of the knowledge of the great cost of our redemption. That's what motivates our obedience, our holy living. You and I are not called to live in fear or trepidation of God's punishment because Christ has already bore the punishment for our sins in our place. But rather, we are to live in reverence and in respect and gratitude and awe at the wondrous work of salvation for us in Jesus. It's, it's knowing how much it cost for God to liberate us from the chains of our sin, 
That's what gives us the incentive for godly living. Notice what we read here about the costliness of our redemption. Verse 18, Peter calls the saints to know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, but not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so, dear saints, we are, we are spurred on to holy conduct when we consider the astounding thought that God the Father foreordained Christ as the sacrificial lamb, he says in verse 20, for our sakes, for your sake, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What a wonderful fact. The manger, the cross, the resurrection, Christ's ascension into heaven, all of it, all of it was for you, for you. He had you in mind the whole time. And the writer of Hebrews even says that the saints of old had to wait to receive the promised inheritance until you and I should come along to share in it as well. Apart from us, we read in Hebrews 11, they should not be made perfect. And so we are immensely privileged to be the recipients of God's saving grace, to have been given the gift of hope and faith in God. And it's these blessings that are part of what motivate our godly fear and our holy conduct in this unholy world. And the more we believe that, the more we rejoice in the love of God for us in Jesus, the more unwilling we will be to grieve Him and displease Him with our sins, and the more desirous we will be to honor Him and glorify Him through our lives. Finally, we see in verses 22 to the end of the chapter that our holy living, our holy conduct is to be born of brotherly love. So far, we've noticed that the call to holiness has focused on our duties before God as our Father and as our judge. But in the final part of this chapter, Peter teaches us that our holy living should also be born of a mutual love for one another as the saints of God. And one of the great ways that we demonstrate our holiness before a watching world is by living according to the truth of God's Word, following Jesus' commandment in John 13, 34. There He says, love one another. By this all people will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. And Peter says two things about this love. In particular, he says, it comes from a pure heart and it's an enduring love. Our love for one another is pure because God has purified our souls. And our love endures because it rests upon, it's founded upon the abiding Word of God. Let me read these verses one more time this evening. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news 
that was preached to you. When Peter talks about the kind of love that arises from a pure heart, we're reminded of what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.19, special passage for me and my wife, who is our wedding passage. We read there, we love because He first loved us. What John says there is that we are able to love God and others. We desire to love one another sincerely and earnestly because God has first poured His love into our hearts and has purified our souls from the sin of self-love by the sanctifying work of His Holy Spirit. We love because while we were still enemies of God, He loved us. And He demonstrated His love by sending His Son to remove our sins. And because we have come to know and enjoy that wonderful love of God that is so beautifully portrayed in the gospel, because we know that, we are moved to demonstrate our holiness in this unholy world by loving one another from a pure heart. Peter concludes here by saying that God has planted His seed of new life in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. And what's the result of that seed being planted within us? The result is that we cannot keep on sinning. We cannot keep on failing to love our neighbors. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, whether against God or against a brother or sister in Christ, because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, clearly then, this gospel reality has some very important implications for our holiness and for our love for one another. But perhaps the most important implication is found in Hebrews 10, 25. There we read that we should not neglect meeting together in fellowship and in worship because we need to encourage one another more and more as the day of Christ's return draws near. In this hostile world in which our faith is so often assailed by enemies, we need to work hard at cultivating the permanent bond of fellowship and mutual affection for one another. We need to spur one another on to good works and holy deeds of service. We need to bear each other's burdens, brothers and sisters. We need to urge one another to be faithful in worship and in service as we regularly come under the mighty preaching of God's unfailing, enduring Word. This world, its unholy treatment of God's commandments, it will pass away. But God's Word endures forever. That basis of our unity and our fellowship is the body of Christ. And that's why Peter appeals here in verses 24 to 25 to the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the Word of God that's been preached to us, that remains forever. It's that Word that assures us that God's purifying love dwells in us and rules our lives, and His abiding love is perfected in us as we seek to love one another according to His Word. And so, Christian holiness, brotherly love, two sides of the same coin. 
Dear saints of God, out of gratitude, out of gratitude and profound thanksgiving for the new life that God has given us, this unfading, incorruptible inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us, out of gratitude for that, let us endure. Let us persist in faith and enjoy and endure all kinds of trials in this passing age. Let us take action to be self-controlled, sober-minded, obedient and holy, knowing that even though we live as strangers and exiles right now on this earth, we have been redeemed. We have been set free from our former way of life by the precious blood of Christ, and we are His elect children. And let us love one another from pure hearts, made pure through the everlasting Word of God that has been preached to us. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Triune God, we we thank You for Your great work of redemption accomplished in Christ. We ask that You would change us, that You would help us prepare our minds for action. Help us to be spiritually clear-headed, sober-minded. Take away the distractions, O Lord, the fog and the, the dullness caused by our sin. Forgive and cleanse us from our many sins against You and fix our hope completely on the great grace that will be brought to us at the glorious coming of Your Son, at Your return, O Lord Jesus, that right now we would live with anticipation the way the saints in heaven and the angels do right now. Lord, help us to take action. Help us to put our sins to death. And help us with gratitude to work and to battle for holiness in all our lives, that we would be living to Your glory and praise more and more, and that we would be an increasing blessing to Your church and to our family and to our friends. O Lord, bless and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Out of gratitude to the Lord, let's sing once again to Him. Number 394 in your Psalter hymnals. Number 394, Spirit of God, dwell thou within my heart. Wean it from earth, though all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. Let's stand together and sing stanzas one, three, and five. One, three, and five of number 394.
Now to your saints of God, as you go forth into the world to live in light of this living hope, living in a holy lives before a watching world, receive now the parting blessing of our God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.